Have you ever heard the phrase or used the phrase, it's going to get worse before it gets better? If I don't believe that, then when worse happens, I might be shocked. And if I don't believe that the hope of better is there, then worse is going to defeat me. It's going to get worse before it gets better. If you don't believe that that phrase is true, try cleaning out that junk closet this week during Thanksgiving break. Because a loved one will undoubtedly walk in 30 minutes later and go, this looks worse. And you'll say, it's got to get worse before it gets better, right? Or if you don't believe me, try remodeling a nice room in your home. It is going to get worse before it ever gets better. That's true of our health as well. I, I remember... Back in 2015, I had back surgery. I'd never even had my tonsils out. Like, I'd never had any kind of surgery. My first ever surgery was they, like, put bolts and pins in my spine. It's quite the doozy, right? And I got home and thought, this is worse. But they had warned me, it's going to get worse before it gets better. That tends to be true with a diet. I know it's Thanksgiving week, uh, week. We shouldn't talk about a diet. But usually when you first start a diet, you're like, this is impossible. And then you get a routine. It's definitely true with working out. Right? There ain't no sore like that first week sore when you start working out. It's got to get worse before it gets better. That's just a part of life. That's also true when we start addressing heart stuff. Some of you have sat in my office and you've heard me lovingly warn you. If you're going to really start tackling these demons in your life, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. The greatest stories that have ever been written have that theme in them. Every great novel, every great movie, every great play, there's got to be tension before it get resolved, before it gets resolved, right? Some of the greatest stories ever told. Listen, it wouldn't be the same if Lightning McQueen hadn't been stranded in Radiator Springs. <laughs> great theater. But that's not just true of this reality. That's true of biblical prophecy as well. Like the the constant reading of scripture about what is to come is just the simple reality check. It's actually going to get worse before it gets better. But better's coming. Better is on the way. And that's sort of the good news, bad news tension of our final kind of landing the plane moment here in the book of Daniel. That I've got a little good news, bad news feelings of my own. I've really enjoyed our time in this book, but I really love Advent, and I'm excited to get to that too. So I encourage you to grab your Bible if you would this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. Um, And we're going to invite you to join in our tradition of holding up our Bibles and saying our creed together this morning before we dive in and finish the book of Daniel. Here we go. Let's hold them up and say it together. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Daniel chapter 10. It's page 700 if you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you. Um, We are not going to read all of the texts that we are going to cover today because... We are finishing chapters 10, 11, and 12 today. Most of the other chapters that we've been in, we've done a lot of reading this morning. We're going to hit some high points because yet again, we kind of said this last week, we don't want to miss the point 
by getting uh, uh, distracted by some rabbit trails. That would be quite the tendency. But these three chapters really could be one chapter. If I had been on that committee that day, I'd have said, no, this is one chapter. This is one thought. This is one uh, idea. They're definitely one unit. This is the, the record of Daniel's final visions. And here's the thing. It's going to get worse before it gets better. There's both some good news and some bad news here. And within the details, some of you really want to like, let's kind of, you know, nerd out on the details. And, and while we're not going to do that today, here's why. The point of this kind of is like the most important thing I could say to you today. And I don't want to miss the point. The point is the point. The great reformer Martin Luther said this about this unit, these passages, chapter 10, 11, and 12 of Daniel. He said this, Daniel concludes the record of his visions and dreams on a note of joy, pointing to the coming of Christ's eternal reign of glory. And then he said this, Whoever wants to study them, these visions and dreams, profitably, dare not focus his attention on the details of the visions and dreams, but seek comfort in the Savior, Jesus Christ, whom they portray, and in the deliverance he brings from sin and its misery. Jesus is the point of this, like with every other passage in every other text. J.D. Greer about this passage said something interesting, which is a good point for me to pause again and again publicly acknowledge how helpful J.D. Greer and Skip Heitzig's uh, pastoral heart in this book has been for me to, to see this through the lenses of the people of God today. But he said, if you listen closely in these details of these prophecies, you will hear the footsteps of Jesus. As he begins to run through the corridors of history towards us. Coming first to a manger in Bethlehem. And then ultimately to the throne of the ancient of days. So we want to look for his footsteps. (laughs) The good news, like a lot of things in life, start off with some bad news Verses 1 through 3 of Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel. His name was Belshazzar. The word was true and it was a great conflict. This is not the point of where we're going to go today, but I just can't acknowledge that sentence. Often today we assume if there's conflict, it can't be true. We just want life to be more magical and roses and sunflowers than that. And I love the honesty of this. It's true. And there's some conflict here. Daniel understood the word, had uh, understanding of the vision, and then he begins to talk himself. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies. No meat or wine entered my mouth. Are we really reading this on the Sunday before Thanksgiving? Nor did I anoint myself at all. He didn't take a bath for three weeks. For the full three weeks. Ooh. That's some serious bad news. That's the opposite of of Thanksgiving week. Now here's the thing about this news that rattled him so bad that he lost his appetite for three weeks. And part of the reason that we're not actually going to read all of this passage is he is getting a vision again 
of what we've already unpacked. He's going to get a vision again um, of these successive kingdoms. So if, if you've not been tracking with us in the book of Daniel, uh, all those uh, sermons are on our YouTube channel. Uh, YouTube channel, You can go get caught up with those if you want. Um, but one of the themes, like many of these visions for these pagan kings and for Daniel personally, have had to do with kingdoms. And here's why. Because it really wasn't about the earthly kingdoms. They were moving towards spiritual kingdoms. Right? These visions begin to unpack and unfold. Daniel's in the midst of Babylon, the greatest kingdom the world had ever seen, the strongest kingdom the world had ever seen at that time in history. And the prophecies were, hey, this greatest kingdom that's ever existed is really fragile. It's actually not that secure. As a matter of fact, very quickly, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians is going to overthrow it. And it's not going to be very long before Alexander the Great is going to make a great mess of his kingdom. And the kingdom of Greece is going to rule here. And then it won't be long that the kingdom of Rome is going to conquer this and most all of the known world at the time. These kingdoms are just going to continue to be taken over one after the other. But then a spiritual kingdom is going to arise, the kingdom of the Antichrist. But then another kingdom is going to arise that's going to once and for all put an end to all the temporary kingdoms because the kingdom is finally going to reign of the king of kings. The kingdom of the Lord of lords, the kingdom of the ancient of days is coming. Make no mistake. And so these little kingdoms that look so powerful yet are so quickly overtaken are meant to be a picture to an unshakable kingdom that's coming. That's the point. In in chapter 7, we have a kind of a physical representation of the spirit of the Antichrist in this one ruler named Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes, that he would be sort of a vision, and he did indeed come to power around 160 B.C., but he was a picture of this future ruler who would be much worse. And the reason that's important is because Daniel's vision here today is Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus Epiphanes until all of a sudden, towards the end of chapter 11, verse 36, he starts talking about a different king from the north, which is not where Epiphanes was from. There's this other king, and he's, he's now talking about the, the Antichrist. And this is important for us to notice in verse 36 through 38. The king shall do as he wills. So he's going to have a lot of authority and power. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He will blaspheme the one true God of the Bible. And in his blasphemy, amazingly, he shall prosper till. <laughs> okay. So like if you're an underliner, note taker, you can circle, underline, highlight, and put even a little drop of blood right there on Till. Thank God for Till. He's going to prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He'll pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. It's a reference to the coming Messiah who would be the weirdest ruler they'd ever seen because he valued women as much as he did men. That's a beautiful messianic uh, messianic prophecy there. He won't pay any attention to any other God. He'll magnify himself above all. 
He'll honor the God of the fortresses instead of these, a God whose fathers did not know. He'll honor with gold and silver and precious stones and costly gifts. And the point of all of that, the reason it's worth noting, is this sounds sort of like the idea mentioned in chapter 7 where Daniel was like, he's going to have eyes that are like human eyes, but there's something else going on here in the spiritual realm. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And this is really the heart of where we're going to park for our, our brief time as, as we're closing this series this morning. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble. It is going to get worse before it gets better. A time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel saw it's going to get worse before it gets better. He saw war after war, conflict after conflict, tension after tension. Historians, a whole lot smarter than me, say that if you take all of recorded human history and you track the moments of peace, that the moments of peace make up less than 8% of the timeline of recorded human history. They say that for every one year of peace we've experienced on planet Earth, there have been 13 years of war. There's been a lot of conflict. And that's not just true globally, specifically for the people of God. That's been heartbreakingly true. People of God have faced a lot of conflict. And I want to acknowledge that one of the criticisms of evangelical Christians... I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase before. One of the criticisms of Christians is that we have a persecution complex. Sort of like a martyr complex, but we're still alive. One of the criticisms of Christianity is that we have a persecution complex that we always imagine everyone is out to get us. And here's the thing. Some of us have met Christians who seem that way, right? They're like, I'm so offended at this thing that just happened. I'm like, I don't think that has anything to do with us. Right? It's fair. But here's reality. We actually know what spirit is at work in this world today. We're not naive to that. So when we things, see things that are opposed to truth, opposed to the Son of God, that actually is an assault on our hope. Real talk. Real talk. Statistical talk. Not made up emotional talk. Persecution against Christians in the world today is as high as it has ever been in human history. And trending worse. There's an organization called Open Doors that statistical research, that they do incredible work across the globe to track persecution of the church in the world today. And here's what their research reveals. This is brand new, like fresh numbers. They just released last year's numbers. It took them 10 months. To, to do this research, 312 million Christians in the world today live in places where they experience what they call high 
levels of persecution. Not somebody said something snarky on your Facebook page because you shared a verse. High levels of persecution. 312 million Christians. That's the highest in human history. Their research says that one in seven Christians are persecuted worldwide. For, for context, one in seven. That's amazing to me. Most of you are sitting on a row that has a, about 12 seats in it, so count seven of you. One of you would be in what's considered a high level of persecution in the world today. This number startled me, to be honest. Their research says that last year we know of 5,621 believers who were martyred because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Not Christians who happen to lose their life because they're in a difficult place. I mean they were martyred because of their faith in Jesus. That number is staggeringly high to me. I never would have assumed that in 2023 or 2022 was last year. Surely the world's more developed than that, right? For houses of worship, over 2,110 churches were attacked, many of which were burned last year on planet Earth that we know of. We know of another 4,500, I'm sorry, 4,542 Christians who were imprisoned because of their faith, most of which without trial, in the world today. Now, in our context today, most of us do not believe that because of our faith in Jesus, we will be imprisoned, let alone martyred. However, we do see that if you hold a Christian worldview specifically regarding sexual ethics, you will be the scourge of social media until they find something else to distract them. Right? That's just real. That's not made up. That's not perceived. That's just actual. There's a brilliant professor um, from the University of Houston who um, loves the Lord, Dr. George Yancey. As an African-American, he's done study on discrimination in America. Because of his position in the academic world, he's got a, a very respectable and trustworthy voice. And he's combined his position of influence with his faith And done significant research about discrimination, not against African Americans, but against followers of Jesus. And this is what he said. Through through extensive research, Americans were asked which faith systems were their least favorite groups in society. And I just want you to know that we won. (laughs) 32%. In this research of Americans said that conservative Christians were their least favorite groups in society. The research said that they liked theologically conservative Christians significantly less than any other group. I love you. The reason he found this uh, this research so interesting and profound and published it in a book is the same research asked the same thing. About Muslims. Only 31% of Americans said they found them their least favorite. He said that's interesting because there's a movement that says we should be pushing back against anti Islam worldview, 
And I agree with that. To judge a person because of their faith is not very American. However, he said, if we're concerned about anti-Muslim prejudice, shouldn't we at least be aware of the anti-Christian prejudice that is growing like wildfire in our country today? And then he begins to give real stories where people have been discriminated against in journalism, in the education, academic realm, in the political realm, the artistic realm, the medical world, even in the business world. I'm just telling you, we might be a little paranoid, but we also believe there's for real a struggle. And our Savior, the one that we follow, said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Okay. He told us, be assured of this. In this world, you have tribulation. Oh, so we're not supposed to win the moral majority today. Here's why that's important. We, we can't be content with this thin level of religious behaviorism that shows up at church sometimes and mouths along to some songs. It is time church to put some deep roots in our faith that says Jesus and his rescue is worth any persecution that comes along with it. He's worth it. We are sending our students into a hostile world. And I hope they see in us a faith that isn't fragile or naive If we're going to remain faithful in Babylon, we need to be honest that it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Happy Thanksgiving. You're dismissed. Let's talk about the better. What's the good news? I want to give you three simple observations from the first three verses of Daniel chapter 12 this morning that I think are good news. I just think this is some really good news. Here's the first observation I want you to hear. If you're a note taker, you can write this down. Hear this. Suffering has an expiration date. (laughs) For the people of God, suffering has an expiration date. I wish I could tell you the date, but it's on there. The print's too small, I can't read it. There is an expiration date. Notice that, that first verse, how the word time keeps appearing. At that time, shall arise Michael. There shall be a time of trouble since there never was till that time like i just love the reminder that none of this is happenstance none of this is random uh, a few moments ago we looked at at chapter 11 and verse 36 where he talked about that the indignation is accomplished it was decreed what would be done all of this things getting worse is under the oversight of a sovereign God who knows what he's doing. There's an expiration date for our suffering. Many of you, if you've ever shared this on social media or worn the t-shirt or drank from the coffee mug, please don't be offended by this. But the phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle, is both unbiblical and untrue and lovingly quite unhelpful Because the reality is, life will constantly hand hand us things that we can't handle. And God will allow that to happen to remind us who we are not and who he is. However, 
He won't give you anything more than he's got a plan for. Oh, that's good news. Nothing will ever enter your orbit apart from the authority of a good, loving, making no mistakes kind of God. Ever. We saw last week, we sent you those, those links about the 70 weeks that are so baffling, we still don't even pretend to fully understand them. That's the level of order and intentionality our God has with all of this. It's beyond comprehension. If he can prophesy all these details of how these kingdoms would pass from one to the other, to where skeptics are like, there's no way Daniel wrote this. We have to find a way to poke holes in the timeline. That means God knows what he's doing. There's a plan. Skip Heitzig says that there are 135 specific prophecies that have already been fulfilled from the book of Daniel. Just sounds like God knows what he's doing. Which means whatever heartache you're facing today or chaos you feel like you're in or lack of control you sense, that means I can still have hope because there's a God who's still writing the story. Oh, uh, last week I read, um, someone shared this phrase, God is writing your story. Stop stealing the pen. That's good. I quoted it as it was, as it was, as I saw it. More realistically, I would say, stop trying to pretend as though you could possibly remove the pen from his mighty hand, right? He is writing a story and he's a really good author. Just trust him. He's not done. And even in the pain and even in the heartbreak, he's up to something. I read the story of Steve Saint. He spoke at a conference several years ago and, and, and said something that just has to be shared in this context this morning. So Steve Saint is the son of Nate Saint, who was one of the five young missionaries who were killed on the beaches of Ecuador back in the 1950s. Maybe you've seen the movie or read the book, The End of the Spear. That's, that's the story. These missionaries have been trying to make contact with the Alcas in order to bring food and supplies to them, to just love them, and hope to eventually earn the right to tell them the story of Jesus. They were deceived by the tribe and set up for a trap, and they were all murdered brutally. Steve Saint, who lost his dad that day, stood up at a conference several years ago and said as a young boy he struggled with why God allowed that to happen. He said, now I realize that it's more than that. God did not actually just allow that to happen. God had purpose in that pain. After the murder of those five men, those five wives went back to those people, to the Alcas. They were so amazed that these widows would come bring supplies back to them that they said, we have to know what's so different about you. And one by one, that tribe began to give their heart and life to Jesus. To where a generation ago, it was hard to meet an Alka who wasn't a follower of Jesus. Specifically, Steve Saint tells the story of growing up in that ministry. 
And he himself was eventually able, as a young man, to baptize the man who murdered his dad. He said that man became a grandfather to my kids. The man who killed their grandfather became like a grandfather to them. And then he said this. Why is it that we want every chapter to be good? When God promises only that in the last chapter will he make all the other chapters make sense. I wish it wasn't true that it tends to get worse before it gets better. I just don't want us to be blindsided by it because better still coming even when worse hits us between the eyes. God's up to something. He has a plan. Suffering has an expiration date. Here's the second observation from these texts. Suffering has an expiration date. Resurrection doesn't. (laughs) Suffering has an expiration date, but eternal life does not. Resurrection hope does not. The end of verse 1 says, At that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Just like a time of persecution has been decreed by the authority of God, just as purposeful as there's a plan for our suffering, there's a plan for our forever. There's a plan for our resurrection. Our hope is not in this life. Our hope is not in the perfect little marriage, in the perfect little house, with the perfect little kids, with the perfect little job, in the perfect little bank balance, in the perfect little economy, in the perfect little smile. Our hope is that death itself can't rob my hope from me. My hope is in the resurrection of the dead. My hope is in the certainty... That everything that is wrong will be made right. Everything that is evil and opposed to good will be defeated. It's decreed. And we want nothing more in this whole world than for you to have that hope. Not just to agree with that hope. I mean to be like guarded by that hope. And guided by that hope. And rooted in that hope But I love you enough to point out, notice it says many, not everyone. Notice that it says only those whose names are in that book. We believe that's a reference to the book of life. The book that holds the names of every person who will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the question. Is your name in the book? Are you on the guest list? Do they have your reservation? Right? Here's whose name is in the book. It's not the perfect church people. (laughs) Like the book is not the got it together club. The book of life is not the people who don't struggle. It's not the people who work hard and do their best. 
The names in the book are the people who've said, I am not glorious, I have fallen short, I am a sinner, I am broken, I can't rescue myself, I can't rescue my kids, I can't rescue my spouse, I can't rescue anything, I need a rescuer, I need a savior. People who've been born again by placing their faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that's who gets their name at it. And it matters more than anything in the whole world to me today. Do you know that you've had that moment? Do you know for sure you've had that moment where you said, I'm not trusting in anything to do with me. I am trusting in what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf. And that alone. When that's true, and we get punched in the jaw by the suffering of Babylon, we're reminded that this isn't our actual home. I know where my... Name is already written down. That's why we began this series and have frequently revisited Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 27. The eternal God is your dwelling place. That's home. Like, man, I feel like everything's just shaking underneath me. I feel like everything's shaking. My marriage is shaking. No, no, no. Underneath are the everlasting arms. The beautiful gift of salvation for everyone is available today. We just have to know that we've received it. It's offered to us. I read just this past week, or maybe two weeks ago, because I was talking to one of you about this. Last year, just in the United States of America, there was over $3 billion of unclaimed gift cards. Right? $3 billion of people who received a gift card, and then it didn't work. Or they lost the gift card. Or maybe they just don't use gift cards. Three billion dollars just left. What could be worse than that? The fact that Jesus would go to the cross on your behalf to make a way for you to have hope and us just leave it unclaimed, unreceived. Suffering has an expiration date. Resurrection does not. Here's a third observation. And in the meantime, the power of God is available to his people. We don't have to navigate the present suffering or the future waiting apart from the power of God. Verse 3, those who are wise, those who believe in that coming resurrection, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. What will happen because of that brightness? It will turn many to righteousness. Like the stars forever and ever. J.D. Greer's study on the book of Babylon is called Shining. The book of Daniel, sorry. It's called Shining in Babylon. Like, we're we're the light switch in the midst of the dark place if we actually believe that Jesus is coming again. The power and authority of the future kingdom is right now present For all of us. And when we live with that hope, it shines in dark places. Some of you this week are going to be with people that you care about very much. And they are walking in darkness. And you know what? They probably don't want to hear a sermon from you. But just maybe they could see hope in your eyes. Shining like a beacon for them. 
I couldn't help but think in this contrast, the idea that suffering has an expiration date and resurrection does not. I, I kept thinking about Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not worth comparing. That's how good the glory is. Not that's how small your suffering is. That's how great the glory is. Not worth comparing. There's some stuff heavy on my heart today. I I haven't seen a single headline talking about this, but there's a massive storm right now hitting our brothers and sisters in the Dominican that many of you have met. The, The church that that you heard us talk about in Gera, the, the church that we've been fundraising for, that P.S., in two weeks we have another $30,000 payment due to purchase that building with them. Um, that church, multiple of those members have lost their homes. They've been completely flooded. They slept in that church building last night. Pastor Guito, his house is completely flooded. And I look at that and think, they were already suffering. Even so, Lord Jesus, just come fix all of this. Or I think of one of the young men at the Mana Orphanage in Guatemala City that a lot of you have been to visit. There's a a nine-year-old boy at the Mana Orphanage in Guatemala City named Santos. Santos is the baby brother of Angie, whose story you have heard a lot about. I was sent a message a couple weeks ago saying, pray for Santos, we think he injured his leg playing football. It's not healing. After a couple weeks, it was, only, it was not only not healing, it was getting very hot. Come to find out they found a huge tumor on his femur. And just yesterday we got news that's cancerous. And this nine-year-old boy that some of you have played Skitbo or Uno with is scheduled a week from tomorrow to have his leg amputated and to begin eight rounds of chemotherapy. And I just think I'm so glad that there is an expiration date for suffering. That there's a glory coming that's not even worth comparing. Something better is coming. And so we just keep going. We just keep walking in hope, shining like stars in the night sky. With hope that it might get worse, but better's coming. Which is sort of the last thing that Daniel says. The last verse of the book of Daniel says, but go your way till the end. I love that. Keep going. For how long? Till the end. Don't quit before the finish line. Just keep going. Run through the tape. And here's what is promised. You shall rest. You shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. How, how crazy is that? There's a spot reserved for you. I wonder if it's going to have like little footprints that we have to stand in. There's a little place. That's the hope. And so we just keep going. Here's the final thought. 
You've probably heard me quote before or heard other pastors quote before a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones pastored the historic Westminster Chapel in London back in the early 1900s. What makes Martin Lloyd-Jones interesting in his commentaries and in his perspective of the text is he was a medical doctor before he was called to ministry. His perspective is just unique because of that, because of his background in medicine. And in regards to this idea of it getting worse before it gets better, he talked about a specific time in history, the very beginning of the Spanish Civil War in Madrid and in Barcelona. What made that moment in history interesting is he said in that region of the world, right before the beginning of the Spanish Civil War, he said the psychiatric clinic and residences were overwhelmed with patients. Historical, historically overwhelmed. People were wrecked by phobias and fears and anxieties and resources were overwhelmed and depleted trying to offer counsel and help and care and therapy for all of the needs. Which sounds a lot like our current mental health crisis in the U.S., right? He said what makes it so interesting is that as soon as word began to spread of this impending civil war in their territory, the psychiatric clinics emptied. It's a phenomenon that psychologists study. And the concept is greater anxieties cure us of lesser anxieties. Greater anxieties cure us of lesser anxieties. People had been worried about their personal fears and phobias, and suddenly they were concerned about their entire nation being crippled by civil war and they had a perspective shift greater anxieties cure lesser anxieties here's what i believe this morning that might be true clinically but i just wonder if greater anxieties can cure lesser anxieties what does greater hope do (laughs) like if being afraid of something bigger can help give you perspective what does having hope in something bigger do And here's the hope that I believe with every little moment of brokenness we experience. It's not the end of our story. It's not the end of our story. Our God is still on the throne. He is our dwelling place. He's still writing the end of a glorious story that's not even worth comparing to the suffering we face today. Maybe you're in a great season of life and so this doesn't resonate with you. Or maybe you are and you just need to be reminded today that suffering has an expiration date. And your resurrection does not. And in the meantime, the power of God to shine as visible hope in a dark world is yours. It's available today through the person of Jesus Christ.